It's good to be back after about, uh, I think, three weeks away, and to be back at uh, Spirit Rock. Um, This morning, I want to explore the theme of how our practice helps us to work with challenges and difficulties. And in particular, want to talk about six ways of practicing with difficulties. I'm using the word practice in the sense of consciously bringing our various tools, our mindfulness, our uh, capacity for loving kindness, compassion, and wisdom to our experience when difficulties arise. And this, this, I believe, is one of the most powerful gifts of our practice. I, I sometimes use language, I think of it as being one of the glories of our practice. And the, the core teaching really is that it's not so much what happens, but how we relate to it, how we respond to it, that's important. Now, I, when I was first starting to meditate, I thought that meditation would end all problems. That I would be calm, peaceful, wise, and live happily ever after. Does anyone else have something similar? (laughs) And I I checked uh, in our Spirit Rock advertising. And I want to offer a friendly critique of such advertising. (laughs) I noticed when I looked at the website that here's what it said. Insight meditation is a profoundly liberating practice and path to genuine well-being, happiness, and freedom. (laughs) Sounds good? Meditation enables you to see clearly the truth of your inner and outer experience providing insight into the ways you create your own suffering and how you can be free of pain and stress. No. (laughs) What I'm going to be talking about is how we can work skillfully with pain and stress. It will recur. So... um, I don't know who wrote that, but in any case. And I also noticed on the website, I looked this morning, here's also what it says. It lists uh, under basic, a basic introduction to meditation, it lists the benefits of meditation. Obtain quiet or inner peace. Have a respite from the pace of daily life. Collect and unify the mind. Clear the mind of emotional turmoil. Feed and experience the truth of quote, the way things are, unquote, for yourself. Learn loving kindness and compassion for yourself and others. Understand and learn how to practice forgiveness. Now, those are all genuine benefits, and that's, those are all true. I looked in that section for anything about the challenges of meditation on the website. I did not find them. And so part of me would like to have a truth in advertising promotion of meditation. And anyway, my talk will serve that function to some extent that I will, uh, because uh, I think it is 
really the case that uh, learning to be more skillful with difficult experiences, with challenging experiences, with even uh, painful, unpleasant experiences um, is a very powerful capacity. And I'm thinking that having the capacity to be skillful with difficulty, with challenges, is an increasingly valuable capacity in our times. You know, that we may be in, and it seems likely that we're in, in future years, for more challenges, more difficulties on a social level. Yeah, I mean, don't have to look very far, right? In terms of fires, which, you know, very significant cause, not the only one, um, climate disruption, Clearly, so having the capacity to be skillful when things are challenging or difficult is not just something personal that helps our personal experience. It's actually a way that we can be those in our society who help in the coming years. So very, very valuable on multiple levels. There are a number of beautiful teachings that point to this. Um, One of my favorites is from a Japanese Zen teacher from uh, about a thousand years ago in China named Yunnan. And he was asked, I think near the end of his life, what is the essence of Zen? And his students waited for his response, and some of them might have been expecting something you know, very grand, profound, uh, of a kind where he said, Zen is seeing into the collapse of the illusion of separateness, where we see into the scintillating interpenetration of all beings and objects in the manifold universe. Could have said that. He could have talked about the way that we, we have penetrating insight into our illusions and see the beauty of the kind heart and the, the way that love is the hidden uh, manifold of the world. Didn't say that. He said that the essence of Zen and the practice is appropriate response. Very profound, very ordinary. That the essence is to, moment to moment, have a wise and skillful response to whatever is happening. That as the core of what we're doing. So our practice is not about becoming calm and being always calm or peaceful or some of the stereotypes that we have of meditation. You know, there's a cartoon that I like which shows a young meditator sitting and the uh, caption of the cartoon is, today I will stay in the present moment unless the present moment is unpleasant, (laughs) in which case I will eat a cookie. (laughs) Okay, so... There's also a a lesser-known teaching from the Buddha called the teaching of uh, liberative dependent origination. Dependent origination is the teaching of how suffering is generated. And I'll give a very short version of that later. 
And there's a a teaching called liberative dependent origination or sometimes called transcendental dependent origination, which talks about the factors that lead to wisdom and liberation. The starting point is when one has a different relationship to the unpleasant, to difficulties, to suffering, not the usual one where you want to get rid of it. But you actually start to explore it. That is the starting point for the path of liberation in that teaching. So I think there's a very, very crucial theme that we're looking at here. And it's part of our practice. I I sometimes think about our practice as having uh, like two rhythms. And this certainly describes my practice that sometimes our practice takes us into greater peace and calm, understanding, clarity, wisdom, seeing our patterns, insight. And that was probably my initial experience in meditation, which kind of got me interested and committed, really. Um, But then there's also a cycle, and sometimes this only occurs, this was the case for me, when we have a certain base of confidence and stability. Then uh, there's another cycle where we go into our difficulties, our, shall I say, neuroses, our confusions, our delusions. What Basically, the teaching is that we are beings of uh, beauty and love and wisdom at our core, but that core gets covered over. And so the practice is really twofold, partly discovering aspects of that core and being more in touch with that on the one hand, but then secondly, seeing what covers things over. Seeing what stands in the way of my own clarity or wisdom, which is typically a lot of our habits, our habitual patterns and tendencies. And that there's a kind of rhythm where where we go, sometimes one is more predominant, sometimes the other is. That's not in our advertising. (laughs) But I think that's the way that practice actually unfolds. And it's, um, what that means is that a significant part of our practice is being with the challenges. So I came to this topic, I came to choose this topic for this particular talk uh, because I had a very challenging experience a little over 10 days ago that my home was broken into. And... Um, it, I sometimes go away for periods of time <clears throat> teaching retreats and I've never had a break-in. I actually never had a break-in in my life for anywhere I lived. I've had some petty theft at times, but not a break-in. So that's fortunate in certain ways. And I was just away for an hour going swimming. And so someone must have been observing and was a you know, most likely an opportunistic crime. The person, probably a he, but I don't know for sure, uh, uh, tried to break in through the through back windows. The first two windows, it didn't work. Tried to break in through a um, back window that near the door, 
but the door had a deadbolt. One broken window, one unsuccessful entry. Then a second window had safety glass and didn't break well. And so second unsuccessful entry, but then broke into my bedroom, broke into a, a window there and came through the window. The, the window was broken and had jagged glass. The person got injured pretty badly apparently because there was blood all over my house. And uh, not pools of blood everywhere, but drops everywhere and a lot of you know, clothing and towels and so forth were filled with blood covered with blood. Uh, the police got very good uh, blood samples. <laughs> and um, my guess is that the thief, you know, in addition to being injured, did not consider it a successful, very successful theft. What was stolen was um, a 2009 MacBook Pro a 2002 Dell computer, and an iPhone 5. I looked it up on the web, uh, looked up on the web what the value is at pawn shops in the Bay Area. It's $10 to $50. Not great. Also, ransacked the house and particularly the bedroom and some closets and um, took, I think, some... I'm still finding what was stolen, but probably uh, several beautiful amber beads and necklaces that I had brought back from Lithuania, uh, where two of my grandparents came from. And uh, also, for whatever reason, the person sat down on uh, my meditation cushions. (laughs) There's some mysterious aspect to this. (laughs) Sat down on my meditation cushions, which was on a couch, Sat there for a while, I know because there, there was uh, blood on nearby, probably from the right hand on the couch, and um, took my, some of you know I often have a red and green scarfs. Well, those are elsewhere than in my possession. <laughs> and those were taken and may have been just to, you know, you know mop up blood, I don't know. But uh, those were taken along with my, I, have a, I had a day pack, which had a, um, I, ha- I had in it a, a, a microfiche of an ancient uh, a Jewish mystical text that I picked up, that I got in Israel, a Kabbalistic text, which is supposed to bring good luck. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, I, and of course, all sorts of valuable things were left. You know, my books, all the artwork, all sorts of things were lost. Some person was just going for street sales, I think, you know, and, um, and so forth. And um, I thought of this uh, Allen Ginsberg poem that I remembered. I, I, I once, uh, I studied for two summers with Allen Ginsberg at Naropa, and, and I remembered one of his poems uh, when he, he wrote a, he was uh, mugged in New York City and he wrote a poem called Mugging. You can look it up on the web. And I think, let me see, the, uh, the I think I have, I brought it here, but he, he basically, you know, just went out walking one evening, uh, was mugged, and they took his uh, wallet with uh, $70 of cash. And he said, at the, at the end of the poem, 
it says, uh, and he, he was... Uh, he was uttering mantras the whole time, saying, Omahum, 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 the whole time. And the end of the poem says, uh, uh, Omahum, I continued chanting Omahum. They said, shut up and we'll get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and so they left. As I rose from the cardboard mattress thinking, Omahum didn't stop them enough. <laughs> the tone of voice was too loud, he thought. And then he says, my shoulder bag with $10,000 full of poetry left on the broken floor. So it was something a little bit like that, that it was uh, all, what was most valuable was left. And, you know, um, anyway, so that was sort of the backdrop. And I'll, I'll, talk about, uh, I'll talk about six ways of working with challenges and bring in some of my own experience, but also other types of experience. Because just to... Uh, uh, give some illustrations of of the practice. So, first, I want to give really that you know the uh, the core teaching that is um, there for being with challenging experiences, and this will this will be my first way of working with difficult experiences, which is to keep in mind the teachings, the transformative perspectives that help us to work with things. Keep in mind the perspective that's helpful to have when there are difficulties. And of course, that's not easy because often when there are difficulties or challenges or something painful or unpleasant, we go back to habitual tendencies not so different from that cartoon. When there's something unpleasant, I will have a cookie. I will not continue meditating. You know, but it's actually the opposite that we want. We want to continue to be mindful. So the first way of working with difficult experiences is stay in touch with a core teaching or perspective. And the, there is a fundamental teaching, which those of you who've come here regularly know pretty well, uh, which is the teaching, the teaching of the two arrows, which I think is the essence of the Buddha's teaching. And it can be expressed very, very briefly. And it's really about being with, the, with difficulties, being with the unpleasant, knowing what our habitual tendencies are when the unpleasant arises, and having an alternative. And so here's the teaching. The Buddha was uh, talking to a group of practitioners, and he asked them a question. He said, everyone at times experiences unpleasant things. How is a practitioner different from a non-practitioner? And I want to say that a non-practitioner includes a practitioner when that practitioner has forgotten about practicing. Meaning us when we forget. So what he said was that everyone at times experiences what's unpleasant. We can, and he in the text, this is a text that you could look up. It's called sometimes the two arrows, the two darts. Sometimes it's just called the dart. Because he said that having an unpleasant experience is like being shot by an arrow, which he called the first arrow. We are sometimes shot by an arrow. In the text, it's primarily about physical, physically unpleasant experiences, but I'll generalize and talk about various kinds of unpleasant experiences. He said that... that um, we are sometimes shot by the arrow of unpleasantness. 
Sometimes that can be physical. We have an injury, an illness, major or minor, that occurs. Um, we, um, at certain times of our life, we are not doing well physically. You know, all of us at a certain point will die. Sometimes that is painful, of course. And so we have uh, unpleasant experiences of physical nature at times. And they can be, obviously, tremendously preoccupying. A few weeks ago, I had a cold sore on my tongue, minor in the scheme of things. When that was there, every time I ate, it was unpleasant. It was not small in my mind at times, right? We know that even things that come and go in two or three days can sometimes be preoccupying. And, you know, we can think, oh, why, you know, can go places. So he said, sometimes we have unpleasant experiences that of a physical nature. Of course, we often have um, emotionally unpleasant experiences. We maybe have difficult interactions with people. We can have difficult emotional, mental experiences. We judge ourselves. We blame ourselves. We blame others. We have irritation, anger, sadness, fear, grief, etc. Sometimes have difficult experiences. We also, again, can have difficult experiences interpersonally or socially. That's part of, all of this is part of human nature. We can sometimes be treated unfairly or unjustly. The Buddha said this is the first arrow. It's part of human experience. Everyone at times is shot by the first arrow. In that, the practitioner and the non-practitioner do not differ. How do they differ? They differ from what happens after being shot by the first arrow. The non-practitioner will, because of the presence of the first arrow, shoot a second arrow as if that would help. And that can take various forms. And so physically, what happens when we have difficult physical experiences? We might um, blame ourselves. We might blame someone else, you know. We might uh, um, mentally just, you know, not want to experience anything, want to get it over with. We may, you know, numb ourselves with, uh, you know, food or drugs or whatever. All sorts of ways that we shoot the second arrow. We also may tense ourselves when we have physical pain And that's extremely common with some types of chronic pain. Not all types, but some types of chronic pain, people tense, you we tense around the pain. And uh, some doctors say that as much as 80% of what people experience with some forms of chronic pain isn't the original stimulus, the first arrow, but it's the contraction. It's the second arrow. No coincidence. John Kabat-Zinn in the first use of mindfulness in the medical field, brought it to the field of chronic pain. Because if you can teach people to reduce the pain by not shooting the second arrow, you can reduce the pain by as much as 80%. Right? Uh, And that could, you know, and that's kind of a model for other ways that if we don't shoot the second arrow the pain level gets way reduced. We pretty clearly see this emotionally and mentally, right? We can see how something difficult happens. 
you know, a 15-second interaction with someone and I blame myself or blame the other or both for the next three weeks or the next three years, right? Or something difficult happens and I am preoccupied by it. In a sense, I shoot the second arrow as if it would help. Another way of saying it is I react to the first arrow by, again, I could be blaming someone, uh, blaming myself, and of course, interpersonally and especially socially, this is at the basis for a lot of conflicts. A lot of conflicts are about two people or two sides shooting second arrows at each other. And that's uh, a lot of how the world works, isn't it? Right? You look at the core of violent conflicts, you'll find uh, something like that, even though they're often asymmetries of power, but still people get enmeshed and shooting second arrows becomes habitual and cyclical. Right? And so uh, the teaching, of course, points us towards how not to shoot the second arrow. Not easy, right? Not easy to do that. On a social level, one of the ways that I interpret the nonviolence of Gandhi and King, Dorothy Day and others, is that it's precisely the same teaching. You know, or as A.J. Musty says, the way to, the way to uh, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Or basically Gandhi, King, Dorothy Day are saying, we have been shot by the arrow of oppression. We will not oppress in return. And that's, uh, I think it's the same teaching. Not easy, but that, that's the guide. So we learn how not to shoot the second arrow. Not easy, right? And with some of the further ways of practicing, suggest ways not to shoot the second arrow. And I'll talk about this. So the first, uh, the first uh, as it were, way of working with difficulties is keep in mind that the teaching or what I call the transformational perspective. Keep in mind that, uh, that uh, as you approach the difficulty. Another way of saying it, can I, learn, uh, can I learn from this experience? One person who I recognize, I think is here, sometimes says a little bit grumpily, oh, another effing growth opportunity. <laughs> but the core of the teaching of the two arrows can be said very uh, succinctly and I think it's the essence of all the practice we do it's the essence of this 2600 year old tradition and it's to learn to respond rather than react shooting the second arrow we can use the kind of a technical term and say that's about reactivity Learning not to shoot the second arrow means to respond rather than react. And all of, again, all of what I'll talk about for the rest of the talk is about learning better how to respond. How do we do that? And again, we may remember the teachings. Maybe we remember a teacher at a difficult moment. Maybe you think of a teacher. Maybe you have a way of connecting with that. I, I have a way uh, every day, four times a day for about a minute or two, I have kind of a vow that I say to myself, which reminds me of the teaching. And this can be just your own language. It brings me back. And, you know, the fact that I do it multiple times sometimes interrupts 
shooting the second arrow, you know? Um, a very nice way to remember it, I, I learned from, a, let me see if I can find this, a woman named um, uh, Carolyn Casey, who has a very interesting show on KPFA called The Visionary Activist. And she talks about what she calls the harumphitude composter. This is when something has happened, maybe interpersonal or something else, could be a theft, and, and you say, harumph, you know, and you get, start shooting the second arrow in certain ways through, through harumphing, okay? And she has what she calls the harumphitude composter. You take your harumph, and this is really remembering the perspective, and you turn it into something valuable. So I remember talking about this with a friend who had a, a cell phone stolen, and we used the technique of the harumphitude composter to um, basically harness uh, good energy, and in this case, wishing that all the spiritual energy in the phone reached the kind heart of the thief underneath everything, remembering that you know the core underneath everything is good, that the... Uh, the spiritual energy in the phone reached the thief, resulting in the thief uh, no longer stealing and becoming a force for justice and healing in the society. <laughs> That's the harumphitude composter. So you can remember that or some other way of uh, returning. You know, you can use slogans. There is a beautiful Tibetan slogan, very similar. You can remember this. Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Okay, so that's number one. So remember, uh, remember the perspective. And of course, when something difficult happens, it's easy to lose that for a while. But can we consciously find some way to have that perspective? Second uh, way to work with difficulties is to bring mindfulness to the situation. Bring that capacity to know what's happening. And mindfulness works in this context in two main ways. Mindfulness brings non-reactivity to our own reactivity, to our own difficulty. Mindfulness also, secondly, lets us know what's happening. I found myself, after the theft particularly, noticing, you know, the uh, first evening, you know, I have an open window, and I'm sleeping, and I'm not entirely secure, you know. And, of course, a theft like that um, affects what we call the reptilian brain, right? The survival part of the brain. And I was cautious. And, as you know, we all know from camping in the forest, sounds may have a magnified meaning, right? And we misperceive and so forth, you know? And so, um, nonetheless, I slept fairly well. Uh, but not so well. So the next morning I was tired. Next two days I was tired. A little bit unpleasant in the body. Of course, something unpleasant happened. I noticed myself catching, oh, unpleasant feelings in the body. That was really helpful because I could know from the teachings that if I have more unpleasant feelings in the body, sensations in the body, more unpleasant thoughts, that I will tend to be reactive. I'll tend to shoot the second arrow. And so being mindful that there's unpleasant occurring is very significant. It lets me be on the lookout for the reactivity. And that's a key part of the teaching. The Buddha actually in the classical teachings 
had the second whole foundation of mindfulness be devoted to being aware of when there's pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Particularly because if we're not aware of the unpleasant, we will tend to shoot the second arrow. If we're not aware of the pleasant, we will tend to grasp. And so that would be a second focus, a second way to work with it. Really try to be mindful because the mindfulness, when we notice it, it has the potential to activate our wisdom. If we're not mindful, we get into habitual tendencies. And so being able to be mindful, and we can also explore what's happening if there's something difficult. Sometimes there are difficult feelings. We can explore anger, judgmental mind, fear. If we have enough capacity of mindfulness, we can explore these, and that can be revelatory. You know, not always easy in daily life, but for me, some of the most powerful meditations um, on retreat or if I have a lot of mindfulness is in looking at experiences like anger, fear, being judgmental, and so forth. And it becomes really possible to see deeply into the nature of these experiences and often to go beneath the experiences, to go deeper. You know, something like anger, for example, is often driven by maybe by sadness or loss or something else. And so the mindfulness can be a very, very powerful tool to explore more deeply. Third way of working with difficulty or challenges, have in your toolbox several ways of coming back to balance when you're out of balance. This is crucial, that we have to have ways. Sometimes our mindfulness will tell us, I'm really out of balance. I'm a little bit lost. I'm stuck in my anger. I'm stuck in my self-judgment. What do you do then? Often, it's too much to be mindful. Mindfulness is not workable at times. We're overwhelmed more. Then you have to have in your repertoire things that you do when it's too much, when there's overwhelm, when um, you're st- we're stuck in the experience. We have to have things to do. Uh, and we can do things of a meditative nature. We can do things uh, of an interpersonal nature. can talk to a friend. can um, um, take a walk. Doing something physical, really, really crucial. I found myself starting... After the thefts, I, I, I actually, as a practice, I, I swim almost every day. I swim laps. I, w- I was actually, some of you know, I was for 10 years a competitive swimmer. And so, still pretty good shape. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the swimming makes such a difference. And I could find, for one thing, it, it's, even though it's a certain amount of work, at the end of the swim, it's extremely pleasurable in the body. And when, there's been, when there are difficulties or challenges, that makes a difference, right? That it shows that the difficulty or the challenge or the pain isn't all there is. Sometimes it feels like that, particularly if it's intense. And so something physical, really, really helpful uh, to, again, talk with friends, do something physical. Uh, you can do meditative practices. Uh, some of the heart practices like loving kindness, compassion, forgiveness... If you practice them every day, in difficult moments, they'll have enough strength that you can use them. You know, something like, a diff, you know, you wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning, something really hard happened last night, you notice your mind starting to go to 
reactivity, judging, whatever. At that moment, you can't really at 3 a.m. call a friend. You can't do laps <laughs> for most of us. And, but you can do something like loving-kindness practice, which was given by the Buddha as an antidote to fear originally, according to the stories. And it actually, because it's a concentration practice, it has the power to shift one out of whatever the mind is in. It's a lot of power when you have that well-developed. So that's the second. The second, or that's the third uh, way of working with challenges or difficulties is to um, find ways of coming out of being stuck or lost or overwhelmed. Of course, we need the mindfulness to tell us that we're there, right? It's not easy. The fourth is to inquire into the difficult experience, the challenging experience, and one can use it if it stays for a while as a opportunity for going more deeply. It's even possible with experiences like fear, anger, being judgmental, to get to the roots of those and actually difficult experiences, particularly if they're mental, emotional, if you go more deeply, they have the potential of having you work out long-standing habitual tendencies that you wouldn't have access to without the problem. That's a possibility, right? You can go more deeply and use this, not just, not just with the motivation, oh, can I just come back to balance? Can I just come back to feeling better? But you can say, let me take this as an opportunity for uprooting my habitual tendencies that are shown by the uh, incident. I think of uh, a Tibetan saying, which goes like this, when the sun shines and my belly is full, I look like a Dharma teach practitioner. Like a teacher as well. When the sun shines and my belly is full, I look like a spiritual practitioner. But it is when troubles arise that my faults are exposed. Right? But we can use those habitual tendencies, the arising of them, and say, oh, an opportunity not just to get, you know, not just to come back to my normal balance, but to use the opportunity to go more deeply and work through the habitual pattern. Now, that's, that's a more advanced uh, practice, isn't it? Many of us just want to have the unpleasant stuff leave, right? But we can use uh, difficult experiences potentially as learn, not just uh, as chances to come back to balance, but to actually learn from them. Hence, the saying by someone I've worked with, another effing growth opportunity. <laughs> Part of us doesn't want it. But if we can take that opportunity, it changes everything, doesn't it? Not easy. Number five, gradually shifting our center of gravity to more awakened qualities. This is related to what I just said. That if we keep on practicing, difficult experiences can sometimes uh, show us more awakened qualities and we can sometimes find those accessible. You know, for example, in my own experience with the theft, for whatever reason, uh, 
I went, I think, fairly soon to some level of compassion. You know, I mean, there was some humor too. This guy got injured pretty badly. Probably, if lucky, got $200 on the street for what was stolen. Got injured in the process. Really, I imagine, of course, I don't know for sure. Maybe I'll meet the person, I don't know. Not in my home, I hope, but... (laughs) But um, um, probably pretty bad experience in many ways. Probably got $200. You know, for me, uh, it's costing me $1,700 for my deductible on my insurance policy. Probably will cost the insurance company three or $4,000. And it takes about 50 hours of my time, Right? Uh, for two hundred, for someone to make two hundred dollars, right? And so my mind went to thinking: yes, the person is, you know, very possibly had childhood trauma. Is certainly not in a good place. I'll, I'll say he. Don't know for sure, but in his life, you know. And I also went to, you know, I'm aware of that people with childhood trauma which could occur for all sorts of reasons, you know, from poverty, abuse, you know, missing parents, etc., that um, um, they don't get much support, right? They don't get much support in the society. I've actually been reading, you know, it's, it's interesting, I was reading at the time uh, that this happened, I've been reading a powerful book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, which is about trauma by one of the uh, persons who's done the most to develop understanding, connected with Harvard uh, Medical School, I think. And I read a a passage in his book, which was relevant. It was interesting that I I stayed a little bit later when I was swimming in the locker room, and I was talking with a, um, a, a friend about trauma. It was interesting. And then I came home to a traumatic situation. But here's what uh, Bessel van der Kolk says. Uh, He says, um, when I go to Europe to teach, I'm often contacted by officials at the ministries of health in the Scandinavian countries, the United Kingdom, Germany, or the Netherlands, and asked to spend an afternoon with them sharing the latest research on the treatment of traumatized children, adolescents, and their families. The same is true of many of my colleagues. These countries have already made a commitment to universal health care ensuring a guaranteed minimum wage, paid parental leave for both parents after a child is born, and high-quality child care for working, all working mothers. Could this approach to public health have something to do with the fact that the incarceration rate in Norway is 71 out of 100,000 people? In the Netherlands, 81 out of 100,000 people. In the United States, 781 out of 100,000 people, while the crime rate in those countries is much lower than ours and the cost of medical care about half. 70% of prisoners in California spend time in foster care while growing up. The United States spends $84 billion per year to incarcerate people at approximately $44,000 per prisoner. The northern European countries a fraction of that amount. Instead, they invest in helping parents to raise their children In safe and predictable surroundings, their academic test scores and crime rates seem to reflect the success of those investments. So my mind went to 
the sort of the brokenness of some of our social systems as being connected. And it, you know, those broken systems manifest in theft, don't they? It's one manifestation, a lot of manifestations. And I saw that early on, and that helps to hold things some. So the, the fifth, shift our center of gravities from reactivity to responsiveness. Develop these more awakened qualities. Sometimes they just come. And the last one is learning to respond more skillfully outwardly. You know, in other words, there's a difficult experience with others, and how do I speak carefully? How do I use wise speech? How do I, um, how do I uh, not be reactive in my speaking? This is a very, my speaking and acting, very fundamental focus for us. And so this would be where we learn how to practice skillful speech more. You know, um, passage from, I think this is from the, from the Buddha. Let's see where this is. Um, Some practitioner is extremely kind, gentle, and peaceful so long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch that person. In other words, if everyone never, if people never say anything nasty, and I, I could add, if nothing bad happens, that person will be look to be a kind person. But it is when disagreeable courses of speech touch person that it can be understood whether that practitioner is really kind, gentle, or peaceful. Right, and so this last area again, we sometimes hear spend a whole series of uh, sessions looking at how to speak skillfully. So I'll just give that you know indication that that's an area. That sixth area is how to be skillful in our interactions, particularly our speech when something difficult has happened. Maybe enough to say, give attention there. So six areas to work with when there are challenges or difficulties. First is keep some sense of a teaching or a wise perspective nearby. Various ways of doing that. Secondly, try to be mindful of what's happening. So again, we don't get caught in reactivity. Thirdly, uh, no ways to come back to balance when you're out of balance. Fourthly, if you have the energy, try to go more, take the difficult experience as an opportunity for learning and going more deeply so that you can actually uproot one's bad habits or one's reactive habits. Fifthly, continue to deepen in awakened qualities and let them manifest when there are difficulties. And sixth, bring your practice also to your speech and interaction. So again, I'll, I'll close by saying that these are really, really valuable, personally, obviously, but they're also really uh, valuable for our relationships, for our families, for our communities, and for our society. Having a number of people who are trained and skilled in working with difficulties, challenges, difficult emotions, hard situations, I think is what we broadly need as a culture for this next period of time. And so you're doing this both for yourself and for others when we develop in this way. Thank you.
Let's see. Uh, can you use the mic? Yeah. Yeah. We'll bring around the mic to anyone who has a I comment just, or question. I just wondered, this is really good for me today. Yeah. Do you have this written down for those of us whose brains are getting older? <laughs> uh, I have it written down here. What, uh, what I could maybe do is just post it on my website or I think sometimes I, you know, the, all the talks are posted on dharmaseed.org, the website. And I think I have the potential of just putting in a, ta- you know, like a word file as an attachment right by the recording. That would do it. One other thing I thought of, when I was in graduate school, they had us read a book on depression. Yeah. And the underlying factor was loss. Yeah. There's always a loss under it. Yeah. And I was thinking of your, because I had that happen too. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, loss can uh, precipitate uh, depression or... If the loss is, uh, you know, for example, a very severe loss in childhood uh, that is not in, in a way remedied can be one of the roots of depression. I noticed after the theft, sometimes having depressed thoughts, you know, I could notice that, you know, uh, it's just, I think it comes with the territory when unpleasant things happen, you know, I think we can notice that, meaning, you know, some negative narrative, right? Uh, that, that sort of felt like it was... And again, the mindfulness could track that and say, whoa, look at that. You And say, I think that's not a good one to feed. <laughs> right? That's what the mindfulness does. But I noticed that happening. We can notice that happening with, with difficulties. Right? Happens enough and we can get diagnosed. Yeah. Please, uh, third row. I just wanted to say, I, I was actually really touched. I've heard this before, the two arrows, but it's been a long time. And yeah. I was most touched by the first arrow, which I don't think caught my attention maybe the last time I heard it. But just thinking about when difficulty arises in me, how quickly I move kind of to the second arrow without even noticing like the humanness in that, like that this wasn't personal. That, you That's know, right. like even I was thinking I woke up really anxious the other day and I went right to like what did I do like why am I anxious and I kind of snapped at my partner but like instead of just being like well I'm human and I got shot by an arrow woke up anxious um, and just letting that be a random thing and a human thing and not a personal thing yeah wonderful observations right and and uh yeah the the two arrow teaching I think is a, a succinct way of getting at the core Teaching. Very succinct, and I like, I like to, again, express it in ordinary English. Uh, again, we have some specific meanings for the words, but learn to be responsive rather than reactive. Understanding uh, reactive as meaning shooting the second arrow. You know, and, of course, some, there some situations maybe which are a little more survival-based, like you touch a flame and you pull back. I think I think the two-hour teaching is not saying don't do that, right? Uh, but it's it's more looking at the ones where it's actually more habitual and there is an alternative, right? And where if we have mindfulness in that situation, uh, uh, we don't necessarily need to shoot the second arrow. And a lot of it's seeing that actually uh, shooting the second arrow may, in some sense, be you know. Hab- you know, come from trying to make it better. But a lot of, you know, we can see that so often shooting the second arrow makes it far worse. You know, and it, but it's, it's kind of defensive, right? It's kind of like trying to protect ourselves. 
And it's a very, you know, it's a very old reaction. And a lot of it, I mean, last thing I'll say, a lot of it is really automatic. That's why we have to uh, study this mindfulness for a while. A lot of our patterns, the second arrow is uh, really, really automatic. It's not like we're sitting there, the first arrow is there, and then after a while the second arrow comes. Someone says something that you think is mean, you will shoot the second arrow in a split second, right? That's, so often the second arrow feels quite, almost automatic, right? But if we study it enough, we can actually bring it into slow motion where what was first automatic later becomes less automatic. See, please, and then we'll go to the, oh, we have a few hands up, okay. We'll go to, the, go to the side and then back to the front. Yeah, please. I've just been thinking about the thief. Yeah. And what a pathetic sad state he must have been in. I mean, for one thing, he was a very incompetent thief. So you, you imagine that he might be drugged or, or uh, uh, mentally deranged because he was willing to hurt himself to frantically get into your yeah. house. Yeah. So... Uh, I think probably he's deserving of some compassion just for That's right. such a in such a terrible state. Yeah, of course I don't know exactly, but that's very very likely. Yeah. Yeah. Um that you know that's my mind tended to go to compassion. You know, I was also god, you chose the wrong house. A 2009 MacBook Pro, an iPhone 5. You know, pawn shop value 10 to 50. dollars This is yeah. Not not lucky. No. But no. did get my meditation stuff. Okay. So, yeah. Good. Yeah. Thank you. And uh you know but but it's hard to know. I mean, I I know people who work in juvenile hall with people who uh are you know with people who have committed thefts of homes. And you know, the motivation can be quite different. Sometimes it's drugs. People uh, that uh, people I know who work with such people say, "Well, we've known people who steal to help pay the rent at home, or to get medicine for parents." So it's I don't know. We don't know. It's it's mixed, right? Because sometimes and then there are people who do it for other reasons. So it's but it's certainly not a happy situation. And it's in our society, it's a very it's a very uh, non-cost-effective way for someone to make $200. Yeah. Um, please. Yeah. Hi. Um, I recently had an experience to where I volunteer for something called So Far Sounds, and um, I basically want to MC, and the um, basically the person who runs it, he told me that he didn't feel comfortable putting me as an MC. So then that arrow was shot and I immediately reacted, you know, and I went into self blame and I was like, there's something wrong with me. You know, um, what am I doing wrong? And then I kid you not like that entire day, I was just fixated on like, Oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? And, you know, um, we're scheduled to have a chat tomorrow. Mm. And, um, my fear is just going like, Oh my gosh you know, he's going to let me go. Like this is, and so like, I just want to find just the, the right response, you know, the right sort of, I guess, way in which 
my response shows him how dedicated I am, mm. you know, to So Far Sound. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for that example. First of all, really good observation. You're noticing what was happening in your mind after it happened. How many of us might have a similar reaction if something like that happened? Okay, look around. Okay, that's, that's important. Yeah. Right? Um, and then in terms of... Um, I don't know, I'm, I feel a little bit protective. <laughs> You're going back to talk with this person. Yeah. You know, um, uh, yeah, I think just if it's not going well, I would say, again take this if it's helpful, but if it's not going so well and you're feeling like something's getting activated, feel free to leave. <laughs> yeah, that, would, that could be important. Uh, but maybe the person is empathic and don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, one, one thing you know, is to be mindful of what's happening. Try, try to see if you can stay, maybe keep your attention to your hands or your feet so you're in your body some. And and have uh, have have some have some friends you could talk to right afterwards. That would be there are a few things that come to mind. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. I think we have time for maybe one more. So maybe okay. Please. Thank and you, you and you could um, we could talk after we're finished if you like. Yeah, and I can be pretty brief. Um, okay. One of the things that you said today that caught my attention and I don't remember ever hearing before. Uh, was that meta is an antidote for fear? Yeah, and I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, meta is an antidote to fear. There's a story which uh, isn't really in the Buddha's discourses, but it's in, I think it's in a, a text by uh, uh, Buddha Gosa from the fifth century. It was a compilation of a lot of literature, and he tells the story of a group of practitioners who went to the foothills of the Himalayas to practice. And they were in a forest, and the uh, forest was full of tree spirits who said, uh, we kind of like you. But then they uh, kept on staying. They had sort of overstayed their welcome with the tree spirits. And this is the belief system from India of that time. And, <clears throat> and the tree spirits had the capacity to... Um, create very uh, bad visions and very horrible smells, which they did. The practitioners uh, basically got freaked out. It's a Buddhist technical term. <laughs> and they rushed back to the Buddha and said, what should we do? And the Buddha said, I have just the um, practice for you. And he taught them metta. Metta is the, you know, loving kindness is the development of a kind heart, which we wouldn't think automatically is an antidote to fear, right? We would think, you know, it develops a kind heart. So, but it's, um, it actually can do that partly because it's a practice that many of you know is done in different ways, but it's essentially a concentration practice where the mind can sort of shut out whatever else is happening. That's one of its capacities when it's well-developed. And so, um, you know, there are different ways of working with fear, but when the fear is overwhelming, it's often better to try to 
get rid of it in, in the moment. You can come back to it later, but to uh, shift out of it. And as I was saying earlier, one of the ways we can do this is meditatively. And I've, you know, again, a small version of this is three o'clock in the morning, you have anxiety about something. If the metta is developed to the point where you've done it every day, at least 10 minutes a day, it will be powerful enough so you can say, time for loving kindness practice, time for metta. You do it, there's enough concentration and the anxiety, which let's, again, it's, if it's in the kind of overwhelm zone, you can actually push it out of consciousness. Again, in the long run, we want to be able to do that and we want to come back to it and see it clearly, but certain moments like 3 a.m. where vulnerable, mindfulness is not going to work, but there are other things that can work, right? We, we actually can push it out of consciousness and that would be a good example if you can do it. The anxiety arises at 3, go to metta, stay with it, Stay with it enough, it, it shift, you shift out of the state. And you can do that at other times as well. So that's an example. And the, the end of the story is the tree spirits tried their tricks, really bad smells, horrible visions. The practitioners kept on doing loving kindness. And the... Uh, bad smells and bad sights, didn't have power over them anymore. Eventually, so the story goes, the tree spirit said, you can stay here and we'll be your friends. So they became the allies of the practitioners. It's a nice way to end. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've, I think we're over time now, Lloyd, is that okay? Did you have a, a comment or a question? Because I think if it's a question, let's do it. At, uh, let's finish and come back to it later. But it's kind of an announcement. Okay. Uh, someone asked about the six points, uh, the six actions that we should take, uh, and asked Donald the point. This is an endorsement of, of his book. The engaged spiritual life has all those plus a lot more. And it's the second book that I read as I was beginning my practice, and I would heartily endorse that you take a look at that. Either mm. copies left here or in the bookstore. Thank you, Lloyd. That's this was not this was not planned. <laughs> <laughs> and the six the six ways are not in the book. I thought of this. The six ways came about four days ago. <laughs> They're new. So okay. So my um, my invitation is to take these as practice, if you so wish, for the next week, and then we'll come back and compare notes in a week. And if you're not able to come back, just practice anyway. How many of you would like to focus on working with challenging experiences, if they come, might not come, uh, in the next week? Okay, great. So let's set the intention now to do that. Just take a quiet moment. And ask yourself, what's going to help me remember? You know, write it down or... And I'll try to post these six ways on Dharma Seed uh, later today. So they're up hopefully by tomorrow. But see what's going to help me remember. Maybe it's to just remember every morning or write it on your refrigerator.
And then we end in a traditional way. We end by inviting what was beneficial with our morning, what was helpful in any way from our practice, uh, our sharing, our talking together, the talk. May that be a benefit to us. May it be a benefit to everyone in our lives. And then beyond our own circles, may we offer the benefits of our practice to all beings, which comes back to us because we are part of all beings. So thank you very much and to be continued. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.